This is the reality dysfunction. Welcome everybody to Palo Alto College's Virtual Heritage Month 2020 with guest speaker, Dr. Ernesto Mireles. I'm Dr. Lori Rodriguez and I'm the coordinator for the Center for Mexican American Studies at Palo Alto College. The Palo Alto College Annual Heritage Month celebration is a collaboration between Palo Alto College's Center for Mexican American Studies and the Office of Student Life and features a series of engaging and educational events that are free and open to the public. The full calendar of events can be found on the Palo Alto College Heritage Month website. As with previous Heritage Month talks, toward the end of our discussion today, we will have an open Q&A using the Q&A feature available to all attendees. Additionally, students, please be sure to complete the survey located in the chat feature to receive credit for your attendance. We will be allotting time at the end of the talk to complete the survey. All attendees will be entered to a drawing for PAC swag and giveaways including a copy of Dr. Mireles' book, which was graciously donated by Dr. Mireles. Winners will be announced on the PAC Student Life Instagram platform toward the end of the Heritage Month series. And so today we continue our Heritage Month uh, month-long celebration with an engaging discussion with Dr. Ernesto Todd Mireles, author of Insurgent Aslan, The Liberating Power of Cultural Resistance. Ernesto Todd Mireles, has worked as a student, community, union, and electoral organizer. As coordinator of the Franz Fanon Community Strategy Center in Pres at Prescott College, he organized for the United Farm Workers, United Steel Workers, and American Federation of Teachers. Mireles is the co-director of the Social Justice Community Organizing Master's Program, where he teaches community organizing. He holds a Master of Social Work in Organizational and Community Practice and a PhD in American Studies from Michigan State University. Mireles is working on releasing a second book of shorter writings entitled La Chicanada, Journal of Revolutionary Thought. Mireles is completing a documentary titled War of the Flea, Fight for Chicano Studies. And now a little bit about the book we'll be discussing today. Insurgent Aslan examines literature produced by the Chicana Chicano movement in the United States from 1848 to the present to analyze how specific Chicana Chicano literary tropes originating in pre-conquest Mesoamerican culture have persisted throughout the centuries, solidifying into present day themes of political cultural resistance for the modern Chicana Chicano. Insurgent Aslan shows how national liberation theory and anti-colonial history created specifically through literature by the colonized is oppositional to colonial history in the United States. Within this oppositional context, insurgency theories of third world liberationists, as well as the role of literature in national liberation struggles are analyzed and applied in an examination of the Chicano Chicano movement in the United States and the literature it produces. It is also the 2020 International Latino Book Award winner so, Dr. Mireles, welcome to Palo Alto College, and congratulations on your award. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I'm really, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for being here. We are, too. So, um, if you can let us know, Dr. Mireles, um, most of us have not read your book yet, but hopefully we will soon. Hopefully. Can you give us, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> can you give us a brief overview of what your book is about and what motivated you to write it? Yeah, uh, 
Well, the, the, the description that you just read is, uh, it's really good. Every time I hear that, I'm like, wow, that sounds like a really good book. Um, the, uh, so, you know, what we're really looking at is, um, is, is, is Chicano, Chicano, Chicanx literature, right? And the, the, um, thing that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to decide in this book, um, you know, what, what kind of literature is it? I mean, and so when we think about the Chicano movement, right, we think about it, you know, in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways that it's been posited right from the very beginning, um, and I mean, even like from 1848, and I'm not saying there was a Chicano movement in 1848, but there was a thing that was happening there. And it's really about uh, liberation, right? About um, throwing off the uh, sort of colonial status uh, that was imposed on us uh, by the United States uh, after the Mexican-American War. And it's a, a response to um, to the oppression, right, that we've been facing. So part of what has happened, though, and this is this takes us forward. Um, you know, my interest, my personal interest, has uh, always been very much in organizing, community organizing, union organizing, um, and that's the work that I've done for the majority of my life outside of the academy um, around. 2000, well, it wasn't around, it was uh, right after 9-11 happened. Um, I was listening to the, watching the news, like many of us were, very intently, and I began to notice that um, newscasters were taking, or they were being very deliberate about who they called terrorists and who they called insurgents. And that sort of struck me, because um, having a, a degree in journalism, uh, a bachelor's degree in journalism myself, um, I could tell, and I knew that when I was hearing those distinctions, that those things meant two very different things. Um, unlike the way that most people thought about those two terms, they kind of made them synonymous with each other. And so I looked up what an insurgent was because I felt like I was pretty sure um, what the definition of a terrorist was. And so I looked up what an insurgent was and I realized that, um, you know, from the definition, an insurgent is a person who is uh, fighting against an occupying power. And as I was beginning my uh, graduate work, I started to really think about that. And I started to think about um, whether or not uh, the Chicano movement was an insurgent movement. Um, and that led me down uh, sort of a rabbit hole. It was a good rabbit hole of looking at um, what's called resistance literature. And uh, I was particularly uh, caught up with two books that were by a professor uh, who I think was at UT Austin. Uh, named Barbara Barbara Harlow. She wrote specifically about resistance literature. And that's what really set me down this path of, of writing this book. Because what, what I was really trying to figure out um, was if the literature that we were producing through the Chicano movement, uh, Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx literature, is, um, is resistance literature. And if it is resistance literature, then that, uh, you know, that has certain implications for the future, the same way that it's had implications around the world in different national liberation movements. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So um, your book talks about the history of indigenous and Chicanx resistance to white, white settler colonialism. Can you explain the concept of white settler colonialism? To us? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, there's different kinds of colonialism. I mean, there's the sort of colonialism where somebody goes and they just, uh, they extract resources uh, from the country 
Um, they used the the resources to to make the the mother country uh, rich. Um, that's kind of the way that uh, a lot of people really think about colonialism. Settler colonialism is a little bit different in that um, people from the mother country come and they uh, stay in the uh, colony. And um, as a result of that, they begin to see uh, the land that they've occupied as a um, as kind of a homeland or a motherland for them. So part of what happens, and I think that this is, I think that this part is actually really interesting too, because a large part of what had to happen in terms of looking at uh, or making a determination about whether or not, you know, Chicano literature is resistance literature was really looking at national liberation movements uh, from around the globe. And so, you know, read a lot of Mao, read a lot of Fanon, uh, Ho Chi Minh, um, Cabral, and really looking at like the intersection, right, of culture and uh, politics um, and resistance. So Cabral has this really interesting um, idea that is a, a huge part of this book when he talks about the return to history. So um, what he's positing, and there's two particular pieces. Um, there's a speech that he gave in 1966 at the Tricontinental Conf Conference in uh, Cuba, Havana. And the, the name of this speech is called the, Th the Weapon of Theory. And what Cabral is saying is that um, for those of us who are colonized or come from colonized people, that we have, um, there was a moment before colonization that uh, you know there was sovereignty and there were there was national identity, and that at this moment of colonization, this moment of conquest, that that history was interrupted, and that the period that we live in now is this period of colonialism, of settler colonialism, because the history that we live in now is not our history; it is the history of the settler. What we're trying to do, or what our purpose is is to find a way to return to history. And Cabral and Fanon and Mao and all of them, they call of that the, uh, the a national liberation movement. And so thinking about, when we talk about decolonization, when we talk about, um, yeah, when, when we talk about decolonization, right? I mean, what we're really talking about uh, is national liberation. And so thinking about like what that means to actually return to history so when people use the term Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex, um, when we talk about our, our indigenous uh, past, our indigenous roots, I mean, what we're really attempting to do is find a way to reassert this, um, this, uh, this, this history, right? To return to history. But what Cabral and Fanon and all of them make very clear is that we can only return to history as a national grouping. We can't... Um, you know, we can't necessarily do that individually, right? That's something that has to be done as a group. And so settler colonialism is the exact opposite of that. It is the structure, is the hegemonic structure that has settled over this land that um, tells us that our history is George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. It is the, the structure that tells us that, um, you know, that we are lesser than, right? That we are the other, uh, even though this is land that um, was controlled by different parts or different um, portions of, of our ancestors, right? Obviously different 
people in different parts of the of the hemispheres. But still, so yeah, you have settler colonialism, which is the history, right, of settlers from Europe here in the um in the Americas. And then you have the national liberation movement that opposes it. And these two things are, are diametrical to each other. Uh, Guillermo Bonfil Batalla, uh, in his book, Profundo Mexico, says that there is a permanent confrontation between Western civilization and Mesoamerican civilization, and that that confrontation will exist until one of them prevails. So when I think about white settler colonialism, that's what I think about. Wow, that's really profound. Um, that's, yeah, that's very, very interesting. Um, you make a note in your book that you use X in the spelling of Chicano or Chicanex because the X is symbolic of indigeneity. Can you explain the term indigeneity and more specifically this term within the context of Mexican-American or Chicano-Chicanex identity? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. This is a good, this is a good question. Um, I read this one yesterday. I was like, oh, that's a good question. Um, so I, I think that one of the, one of the things that it's important to remember is that, that many people, many of us, uh, who are, um, you know, descendants like Mexicanos, right. Um, that we've, we've been detribalized, uh, and it doesn't mean that we can't figure out certain things or, or that we can't know, but um, it's different, uh, I think, for us than it has been for a lot of, uh, well, for the people, uh, our indigenous cousins who were here in what we call the United States. Um, so we think about it, though. I mean, just because um, we don't know exactly, you know, who or what tribe or nation that we come from, it doesn't mean that we're not. Uh, descendants of indigenous people, right? I mean, if you think about Mexican Spanish and the amount of native words that are in there, the the food that we eat, the way that we think about the world, if you think about, you know, our customs, I mean, and there probably be some people who maybe get mad at this, but even you look at like symbols like the Virgin of Guadalupe, right? Who appears to uh, Juan Diego on the hill of Tepeyac, which is where the, the, um, the uh, temple uh, for uh, the goddess <laughs> whose name totally Thank you. <laughs> I just drew like a huge blank right at that second. I mean, there, there's no way to say, you, you cannot say that these things are not connected to each other, right? I mean, that's, that is, uh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're all connected. I mean, we are who we are. So thinking about this, like in terms of indigeneity, right? I mean, one of the, you know, we've all heard the, the, the slogan, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, but okay. And, and we all, you know, we've all said it, we've all been at marches, we've all been at rallies, but that's true, right? It's not, it's not like a catchy little phrase. It's not a thing that we, that we're saying to make ourselves feel better. That is actually true. We have always been here, as, as our ancestors have always been here, right? We are indigenous to this continent. And so that's, that's a claim that, that, we have to, that we have to make as a community. That's a, that's a thing that we have to accept, is that we are, we are a part of the, the lifeblood of, of this continent. Just within the last week, 
an article came out that was written by uh, Ian Haney Lopez and uh, another person whose name escapes me, but they did a survey and it wasn't a huge survey, but in this survey, one out of four, no, three out of four people who uh, identified as Latino um, said they were white, which I thought was really interesting. That means that there's only like 25% of us who don't think that we're white. So, I mean, what is, you know, what does that mean, right? As, as we're looking at this and, and the more that we sort of accept that rhetoric, the more that we think about ourselves in terms of somebody who actually, you know, came here, like, I mean, like, how do you come to the United States if your ancestors have been here for innumerable centuries? You can't come here. This, this geopolitical border that's been drawn is irrelevant to the history, to the, to the existence of this continent and to the existence and the movement in the mass migrations of the people who have, uh, or who are the descendants of people who have, who have always been here, right? So when we take on that claim of indigeneity, I mean, really what we're doing is we're saying we belong here. Um, we are not other, right? We are not, I mean, we're, we're not other. We're, we're, we are a dispossessed nation, nations, you know, finding, struggling, resisting to, um, to come back to history, right? To, to return to this place that is rightfully ours. The same way that it is for everybody around the world. The same way that it is for Palestinians. The same way that it is for Chetzian, right? The same way that it is for the Kurds. I mean, it, these these struggles have have international dimensions, and the Chicano struggle is is no different, right? So when we claim that, when we claim indigeneity, that is that is what we're doing. We're placing ourselves within these international struggles within an international framework. I think you did a really good job of answering that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you said, I'm like, that was really good. Um, <laughs> And so that, that goes back to, so I know students oftentimes, just as a follow-up question, students oftentimes ask, well, what is the difference between Mexican-American and Chicano, right? So that would be a good, right, a good explanation of, of why you would claim Chicano is claiming that indigeneity, right? Claiming that, that belonging, right? I think so. I, I think that, in, you know, the, I think the other thing that's important to remember is this. Um, words matter, but their definitions change. And they're constantly in flux, right? And actually, the fact that it's constantly changing, I believe, uh, verifies and speaks to the dynamic nature of what it means to be Chicano in the United States uh, right now, right? Because if it wasn't changing, if it wasn't in flux, if there wasn't a debate, right, then the conclusion of my book would be, I think, very different. And it would, you know, the conclusion then would be that there is not a resistance movement um, among Chicanos in the United States, because the only way that 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 can really happen is if we are in doubt, right? I mean, definition, um, definition, I, I would argue is death, right? As soon as we can define something, as soon as we say, this is what this thing is, that's over. It's done. It's like Latin, right? It never changes. It's always the same, you know, but that's not, that's not who we are. We are in flux. We are constant, constantly changing, constantly evolving, constantly debating. And I think that that is also 
very much a, um, a condition of this idea of indigeneity that we we're talking about. Thank you for that. So um, next question I have is, um, your book discusses indigenous resistance spanning from the last Mexica or Azteca or Aztec emperor, Cuauhtémoc, to contemporary cultural productions such as Robert Rodriguez's film Machete, which is very fascinating. Uh, while the social <laughs> contexts have changed, obviously, there's a lot that has changed over those, those uh, years. Um, are there any constants that you see as far as a politics of resistance throughout time with regard to indigenous and, and Chicano, Chicanx resistance? Yeah, I think that from the very beginning, um, if you if you look at these ideas, like the idea of Aslan, or the which are these are all ideas that I talk about concepts that I talk about directly in the book, Aslan, the Virgin of Guadalupe, this, the Mandato. Um, at their core, uh, what they're doing is they're either saying, these guys got to go, or they're saying they're going to go, right? I mean, the, the, whole, uh, the whole idea of Aslan is the, is centers around uh, sovereignty, right? It centers around, um, you know, a reemergence. In, into history. I mean, that's that's literally what the idea of Aslan is. Um, with the Mandato, that, that part was actually really interesting because, you know, I had grown up reading that and, uh, you know, as a kid and I was, you know, very inspired by it. Um, but it, it's a speech that was actually probably wasn't written until the 1950s. Um, and it was put out by a uh, Mexicanist group. Um, in, in Mexico in the 1950s. Uh, and so the, you know, what I, I think is also very interesting, and I don't think that it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think it diminishes the, the power of it at all. I, I think that it is uh, very much um, still, still a carry through. I was talking, uh, actually one of the guys that I write about in the book, uh, Curly Talapayawa from uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I spoke to him for a long time about this particular piece because he's, I think, um, very much an expert like on these writings. Um, and he was, uh, said that he believed that this speech was, a, um, was taken from one of the codexes. And he, he showed me the, the part that he was talking about. And it, it's very similar talking about, you know, um, the children and teaching them and, and all this. But it's, you know, much more poetic language in some ways as, as Noah is and so, um, you know, I think that that's sort of the constant. I mean, even if you come right down to like Machete, right? I mean, <laughs> it's a fascinating movie. It, re it really is. Um, and it, it came out right as I was writing this, this book, like as I was really engaged in the writing of it. But I think that there's a couple of things about Machete that, that cannot be overlooked, you know? Um, and, and one of them is, is that, uh, this is really one of the first movies where you have Mexicans or Chicanos who are not fighting each other, right? They're fighting, uh, they're fighting white people and they're fighting them in a way, they're, they're fighting them for political reasons, right? They're not fighting them uh, for personal reasons. This isn't about vengeance, it's not about honor, you know? It's about politics. It's about who belongs, you know? So you have this whole network of people who are sneaking um, individuals, you know, uh, into the United States and how do you protect that? And then the whole idea that this group of people would um, stockpile arms, right? 
that they would uh, have this network. Um, I mean, the the whole thing is 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 fascinating, and I think really represents uh, you know a, a leap forward, but it is also taking um, these same ideas, right? You know, we're not uh, foreigners; we are not the other. You know, I mean, even in the end, when Robert De Niro is killed, uh, you know, and they're using the same lines about "Welcome, Welcome to America." I mean, this um, there, there's a lot that's there's a lot there's a lot that that's happening there. But this, I think, the the it goes back to this idea, like when we were talking about indigenous resistance, right? I mean, from the very beginning, it is we will rise, we will continue to um, to uh, learn and to teach. I mean, it, let's go, and I think this part's also very interesting too. I mean, if you go back to even like the Virgin of Guadalupe. I mean, all of this happens 12 years after the fall of Tenochtitlan, right? There is no way that anybody can say with any sort of absolute certainty that the Spanish 12 years after the fall of Tenochtitlan had Mexico, what we call Mexico, under control, right? So, you know, to think of it as anything other than like this uh, movement of resistance is... um, I mean, it just it just isn't going to work. And so when we think about when Aslan emerges, right, in 1969 at the Chicano Youth Conference, I mean, people knew about it before then, but they hadn't really talked about it. But the way that it's been reimagined since then, the way that it's been written about the countless books and dissertations and articles that have come out about this idea of Aslan show that um, there is there is some seriousness uh, about about this idea that it's not just uh, it's not just a thing, you know. And so one of the uh, debates that we had during uh, my PhD program, when we were talking about Aslan, was there were some people um, there who were all like, "Oh, nobody ever talks about that anymore, right?" But they do talk about it. They call it the Reconquista, you know. They call it um, uh, immigration invasion. Um, Samuel Huntington's 2004 article, The Hispanic Challenge, and the book that he wrote subsequently after that, uh, Who We Are. Um, I mean, this is this is what he's talking about. He's He and Lou Dobbs and all the rest of them, I know Lou Dobbs ain't on TV anymore, but he spent a lot of time talking about the Reconquista. Um, they're, they're talking about this, the re-indigenation, right? The re-Indianization of, of the Americas. I mean, that, that is their worry. That's what this wall is about, right? They're trying to, to stop something that they see will fundamentally alter white Anglo-Saxon Protestant society here in, in, in the United States. And, and that is what they're, what, they're trying to, uh, is what they're trying to stop. So, you know, when we think about resistance, I mean, there's all these things that are happening, right? And... You know, like there's a slogan that says that my existence is resistance. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not really so sure about that, you know, especially if three out of uh, four people think that they're, you know, Latinos in the United States think that they're white. I'm not sure that our existence is resistance. Resistance is intentional. It is directed. It has a political element to it, not just a cultural element to it, right? It has a political element to it. And um, 
I think that all of these things, I mean, this is the sort of glue that holds all of these ideas together is the political element. Thank you. So you mentioned the term Aslan several times. Um, for those in the audience who aren't familiar with the term, can you give a brief uh, definition of what this concept of Aslan is within um, Chicano Mexican American politics or political identity? Yeah, just real quickly. I mean, Aslan is uh, the place where the Mexica, the Aztec, um, immigrated from to uh, central Me to central Mexico, there where Mexico Tenochtitlan was built. Um, nobody really knows where it's at. There are some people, uh, notably uh, Roberto Rodriguez and Apache Maiz, who um, spent and wrote books. They spent quite a bit of time researching this and wrote books about it. Um, you know, sort of like pinpointing the uh, maybe the location of it. I think that uh, I agree. I agree with both of them and their findings. It's not like a disagree or not agree. I think that what uh, Maïs has to say about it is um, a little bit more to my personal liking. And he's saying that Aslan is, you know, um, it doesn't actually matter where Aslan was. What matters is, are we ready to to begin building it? So, um, you know, at one time, a, a location uh, in the 1960s during the Chicano Power Movement, um, Aslan really became to... Uh, people really started to think of the, the entire Southwest as Aslan. And so that's why they, they talk about that. Um, you know, the, the states, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, um, as, as being Aslan. And really, I mean, when you look at it, you can see that that's where the, the population center or the, um, the population is weighted for uh, Chicanos, you know, in the, in this part of the country. Although that's changed a lot in the last 30 years. Um, so yeah, Aslan is, you know, is homeland. It's a, it's an idea of a place, like a nation, like a land base um, for Chicanos. Thank you. My next question is, um, in your book, you discuss the Tucson Unified School District and how its Mexican-American studies program was shut down through the passing of House Bill 2281, making it essentially illegal to teach Mexican-American studies there. Um, it was later reversed, right, as being discriminatory and unconstitutional. What do you believe is the importance of um, Mexican-American studies or ethnic studies in general within the context of your book? I mean, there, there's a couple of things. One, I mean, the, the Tucson uh, program, the MAS program, I mean, if you look at the statistics for that program, um, one of the things that becomes immediately clear is that it was the most successful um, education program for Mexican Americans uh, in the history of this country, hands down, right? Um, I believe that they uh, achieved that success through, um, well, through some excellent teaching. And I think that the, you know, I know that the people who were involved in that were, that, like they were, they, they were in it, right, to win it. Like this was, this was very important to them. But I think that ultimately um, what happens, and I think that what makes it important is what what they were doing or what they did was they they sort of pierced the veil of hegemony, right? And they started to uh, really help their students see, um, you know, what what was what was really happening in terms of like their own uh, you know economic situations, their own cultural situation, 
And um, as, as a result of that, they uh, were able to really challenge um, some of these prevailing ideas. And I think that this is the part that prevailing ideas about, uh, you know, who we are as, as Mexicans, right? Like the dominant society's ideas. And I think that this was, um, this, this was a big, this was a big part of it. Think about it. Most of us don't ever have a Chicano or a, even an ethnic studies class um, until we're in college, right? Some of us don't even really get this material until we're in graduate school. What changes when you create a educational system that centers uh, Mexican American identity, politics, culture, right? From the time a student is in kindergarten until they graduate from high school. I mean, public education in the United States is a propaganda machine that turns us into American citizens, right? We stand and we say the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, we learn the um, national anthem and, you know, not to go back to my man, George Washington, but we learn about George Washington and how he never tells a lie and how Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and I think he wrote the Declaration of Independence because <laughs> my education wasn't that great. And then, you know, you have all these things, right? But this is where we learn. This is where we learn that there's, you know, three parts to the government and, you know, everybody should vote and it's our duty and the United States won World War II. And, you know, we, we learn all of these things. It is a propaganda machine that turns us as the descendants of indigenous people into Americans. We don't live in our history. We live in the settler's history, right? So what this program was doing and what the power of Mexican-American or Chicano studies is, is that it teaches us, it takes us out of that history, it takes us out of that timeline, and it places us back in a timeline that makes sense to us. Because now what we're starting to see is who we are, right? Where's our place in all of this? And what we understand from learning that is that this isn't our history, that this isn't our country right now, that we are living in a, uh, in a situation of oppression, right? And that we are involved in a project of resistance. And where does that project of resistance lead to? I mean, this is the question that we have to answer for ourselves right now, is where does this resistance lead, right? Does it lead to more of us voting for Joe Biden? I don't know. I don't think so, right? Does it lead to more of us becoming uh, millionaires? Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't necessarily think that that's where it leads to. But I mean, it's a question that we have to, we got to slug this out among ourselves, right? This isn't a, this, this conversation that we're talking about here, and particularly even this, you know, like when we think about the importance of Mexican-American studies, right? That is not a conversation that we have or that we can have meaningfully with people outside of our community. That's a determination that we have to make for ourselves. How important is this, right? I think that's, that's the thing that, that we have to keep in mind is that ethnic studies, Chicano studies, Mexican-American studies have the potential to, to pierce, you know, the, the veil of, of hegemony and to pull that curtain back. Then we can see the guy who's operating the machine back there. And I think that's the part, that's the danger of, of what was going on. And I think that's what was outlawed in, um, in Arizona. Nice. Thank you. 
Next question. Um, what are some of the more pressing issues that you see affecting Latinos and Mexican-Americans today? Um, and I would say Mexicans, Mexican-Americans more specifically, um, that are informed by this, um, this legacy of white settler colonialism? And what are some ways that we can resist or, and overcome these issues? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh... Wow, there's so there's there's so many there's so many issues. Um, you know, I, of course, the the first one that uh, everybody talks about is uh, immigration. Like it, it jumps to to um, to mind. There was a recent study, recent within the last three or four years, uh, by the Pew Hispanic Center, um, where they were asking people what the top issues facing the Latino community were in the country, and uh, actually, immigration came in at number four. Uh, education, uh, prison, uh, employment, all of those things came in above uh, immigration. And um, it's not that immigration isn't important. I mean, let's, let's think about this. I mean, I think this is actually uh, a nice segue into, into this uh, question. I mean, there are, they say there are somewhere around 60 million Latinos in this country right now, okay? So let's, let's just say for the sake of argument that that's true, that there are 60 million of us, right? The vast, vast majority of that 60 million people are, um, do not have uh, immigration issues at all, right? Um, if that's true, then why are there kids sitting in cages in detention centers right now? Why, how, how can that be? There are 60 million of us, right? How do we let that happen, right? And we can only, you can only blame that, I think, to a certain extent on disenfranchisement from the political system. Because sure, we've been disenfranchised from the political system. That, there's no question about it. But there are 60 million of us. That's enough to create our own political system. We, we don't have to. So this is, this is the thing. As long as three out of four of us think that we're white, then we also think that they should treat us that way. But you see, I got newsflash. They don't see us as white, right? I mean, you, 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 we may see ourselves as white, but that's not how they see us. And so the question is, is how long do we stand around waiting, right, for these people to recognize that we're white, you know, instead of just saying, okay, I don't really think this is working, right? You know, so now what we have to do is, is think about alternatives, Think about how to um, how to create political alternatives to the situations that, that are happening right now. Right? It's clear that we can't do it through the Republican Party. I, I hate to say it, but I, I got a lot of. I'm, I'm not not very confident about the Democratic Party either. You know, so we have a two party system that seems to not really worry about us too much. I mean, if there's 60 million of us in this country this year, we are the largest non-white voting block in this country. We are absolutely absent from this electoral process. We are not a part of either one of these campaigns. Actually, to tell you the truth, we might be more a part of Trump's campaign <laughs> than we are Biden's campaign, which is scary. It's weird, right? But I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of where we're at. So this, this whole notion of, of settler colonialism I mean, 
to understand, right? This, this is where, to go back to the last question, this is where the power of Mexican-American studies comes because the first thing that we have to understand, and I know I've said this before, but I'm gonna say it again, is that this is not our history. This, this is not our ball game, right? And we can try to play in somebody else's ball game, but we probably would be much better served if we created our own, right? So do uh, Chicanos and Latinos have a political party? I mean, we have um, the beginnings, we have the semblances, we have the, the structures for things like that, but it takes time. You have to organize them, right? You have to be willing to, to work towards that end. This is what I was saying earlier, is that resistance is intentional. It's long-term, right? It happens over, over a period of time. It's, there's no such thing as instantaneous, spontaneous resistance. That, that's, that's not true, right? It, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't happen like that. So when we think about, um, when we think about how we can resist, I mean, education is important. One of the things uh, that a group that I'm working with, uh, Mexicanos 2070, uh, that we did, uh, we launched on September 16th, a, um, a, a virtual college, uh, Colegio Chicano del Pueblo. And, um, you know, we're offering uh, Chicano studies courses uh, for free to, um, you know, people who want to sign up and take them. We think that that's, that's a good start, uh, or it's a step anyway, something that needs to happen in the community. We need to have talks about politics. We need to, um, you know, build organization, right, in our communities that are going to um, allow us to, to mobilize mass amounts of people. I mean, this isn't a, it's not a one-on-one -on -one proposition, you know, great, I have a PhD, you know, great, I get to be a college professor. That literally does nothing to change the economic, political, social um, reality of my community. It changes my reality, but it doesn't change the reality of the community. And particularly if we, we don't find a way, right, to take these things that we've acquired, these skills or these, um, this knowledge that we've acquired and reapply it back into the political resistance of, of our community, then, I mean, again, you know, it doesn't, I mean, we're just playing into this, this whole idea of, of settler colonialism right, where the individual is paramount, where the individual is the one that, that stands above. I mean, you know, you see it last night in, in the debate. I mean, there are two individuals, right, who are just hammering away at each other, you know. I mean, we elected the ultimate individual four years ago to be uh, president of this country. And look at what we've, um, you know, look at what we've reaped as a result of it. So, I mean, you know, this is about group identification. This is about building organization. That is what resistance is about, you know, and it's about understanding that, that as a group, we have a place, you know. One of the definitions of nation that I really like and that I work with a lot um, basically goes like this, that a nation is the highest grouping, the largest grouping of people that can command loyalty, which I think is a, a great definition because usually when we talk about nation, we talk about nationalism, people talk about how it uh, fractures and it, it tends to make things smaller. But I don't, I don't think that that's true at all. I think it, it is, in fact, the highest grouping, uh, the largest grouping of people that can command loyalty. And so I, when we begin to think about it in that way, right, then the whole notion that there are actually 60 million of us takes on a very different uh, tone.
Thank you for that. So those are um, the, that was the last of the, my moderator questions. We're gonna switch now to the Q&A session. We have some people that have um, asked some questions in the, uh, the chat and anybody who's wanting to ask a question, you can use your Q&A feature right now and type in a question for Dr. Mireles. So one of the questions that came up is um, from Sonia Hernandez. She says, the fact that Hispanics and Latinos don't have options other than white in government forums, such as the census, um, do you think that is why many identify as white because of the lack of options on forums to identify? Um, a yes and no. I, I think that, I, I think that, you know, you can, there's every forum that I've ever seen always has an other. I mean, you can, you can always write yourself in, you know, whatever, whatever you want to be. I mean, that's, see, this is the thing, right? Is that there is no law. You are under no legal compunction to identify yourself as anything, right? That is, um, that is, that is information that the government is collecting. Uh, You don't have to, you don't have to write either one. You don't have to write anything is, is, is my point. So doing it, one, is an intentional act because you're not under any um, compulsion to do it. And I think, you know, you know, thinking through what it is that, that you want to be. The other thing is, is that I really do think that there are a lot of us who really do think that we're white. I mean, straight up. I mean, I, there's a whole bunch. Of, I got them in my family. And I know, I know you all listening got them too. Like they straight up think they're white. And so it's just like, and it, it's amazing. The, you know, it's just like, that that's not that's not going to work out for you the way you think it's going to, you know. Um, and that's not me being a hater. That's just me, after fifty four years of life, watching how that plays out for people, and it doesn't usually play out pretty good. I mean, there's one or two, you know, they'll make a lot of money, but I mean, that's also you know the economic system that we live in. Not all of us are are going to rise to the top, and so I guess you know a lot of it depends on, you know, what you're willing to, to do to um to to achieve that so that's why i say yes and no right i think it's partially that but i think it's also partially what a lot of people really believe what about the native just to follow up on this question my own follow-up question what about the um there's usually you can you can check native american right Mm -hmm. and people oftentimes don't if they're latino mexican american because as you referred to before we've lost our right our tribal affiliation in that history of colonialism right so you feel kind of like well i'm native american but then it's like sometimes it asks follow-up okay what tribe and you're like i don't know right but i know i want to identify as indigenous native american right um and so it's also those forms can be limiting right and and kind of right um silencing in a lot of ways we're okay then prove it right prove which tribe that you're from right or even you know um you know, through, you know, scholarships, right? You have to, you know, if you're indigenous, you have to, right, have a tribal affiliation to be able to get yeah. those benefits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, because a lot of my students will ask, well, then what do we check, right? If there's only white and, you know, then there's Native American, but then, right, what do we put under that? And so it's like, it's basically kind of subverting the forms, right? <laughs> subverting that whole system. It's like, write it in, right? You're going to, you know, identify yourself as you want to be identified, regardless of what the forms are, making you right, right, or check. I mean, in the 2010 census, uh, 179,492 people uh, who were who also identified as Mexican-American um, wrote in that they were Native, that they were, that they were Indian, um, making uh, Mexican-Americans the third largest uh, grouping of Indians in the United States in the 2010 census. 
Um, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a lot of things. Like I hear this on, on campus with, with my students all the time too. Um, and it, I think it's interesting. You know, if you look at anti-colonial writers of the past, uh, I think I'm thinking particularly of Fanon right now. And what Fanon was saying was, when he was talking about Africa at the time, but he was basically saying that um, colonialism or the colonizer, they, they, they're not worried about what this person is doing or what that group of people are doing. And they don't make that distinction among themselves, right? They, 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 don't, they don't care about that. That's not what they care about. And so as a result, what Fanon is saying is that the response of the indigenous or the colonized has to be continental in breadth, right? We also have to stop thinking of ourselves as these, um, and, and this doesn't mean that people give up their identity, but we have to think about um, ourselves as bigger than these uh, tribal groupings that, that we've come into or that we're being pushed into, even like as Chicano, right? Like if we say that Chicano is a tribal grouping, we have to think about ourselves as, as bigger than that. We have to think of ourselves as, in, as indigenous people. There is a system of settler colonialism that has taken over this entire hemisphere, right? This entire side of the globe is, is, is ruled by this system of settler colonialism. There is no way for us individually, individually or as individual groups to oppose settler colonialism. It's, it's impossible. If it was possible, then we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now, right? This is, so this is one of those, let's learn a lesson from the past moments, right? We can only do this if we do it together. And if we start arguing with each other, you know, or denouncing each other as, um, as imperialists, right? Because we have ideas about being um, indigenous. Then, I mean, really all we're doing is playing into um, the hands of, of settlers. Thank you. Um, let's see, we have some good questions here. So as a follow-up to that, uh, that question about the census, um, someone said, I identify as detribalized indigenous, but have been so colonized that I feel guilty for doing that. <laughs> so some people feel guilty for identifying as indigenous, when, <laughs> right? When we've been, um, you know, like you said, so socialized, right? And yeah. Settler colonialist uh, culture, right? Um, so here's a here's a good question here from John Anderson. So he says, "Why does group identity have to clash with other races, with government? Should I be held responsible for the animosity given to Anglo-Saxon settlers' actions?" I was under the impression that both natives, Hispanic, and whites fought for Texas independence and then joined the Union. Whites were not the majority in those actions. Our ancestors chose that. Is, um, is it important? So is it important to throw that away? So that's complicating things a little. I mean, I, maybe you could help me out with that question a little bit. Could you, you think you could give me some like, a, like an interpretation of that question? I think um, what he's speaking from is from the perspective of being white, right, today, mm -hmm. and then looking at the history specifically within Texas, right, for Texas independence, right? So how in that, that time frame, right, you had a minority of Anglo, right, settlers in Texas, right, who fought for ind Texas independence, right? And you had the, the Mexicans, right? Sure. Some of the Tejanos that were fighting, right, for Texas independence. Absolutely. So I think his question is, can there be um, another perspective, I guess, from his perspective? He said whites were not the majority in those actions, right? He says that the, the Anglo settlers, right, they chose those actions to fight for that, 
that independence. So he asks, um, is it important to throw that away? So I guess like looking at that example, right? So I, I don't I, I don't think that you, we need to throw anything away. I also don't think that it changes um, it changes my answer in in any way. I mean, the the time that you're the time period that you're talking about still falls within the time period of settler colonialism, right? I mean, my my point, and I think the point of this book is that um, there's this system that's called settler colonialism. All right, we we see that. We understand it. We're a part of it. We can't remove ourselves from it. Like th there's no way for us to extract ourselves from this system. Only the only way that we can extract ourselves from this system is by engaging in this process of national liberation that creates a disruption to settler colonialism that overthrows it, that replaces it, right? And that institutes what uh, Benjamin and other philosophers would call a, a new law, right? That's that's the only way to do this. So it isn't even necessarily like it isn't even necessarily like a criticism of of other people, right? And and honestly, it's it's not a criticism of white people. To to be real honest with you, it's a, a criticism of settler colonialism, right? It's a criticism of that of that system, which you know, again, I mean, if three out of four Latinos in the United States think that they're, think that they're white or they identify as white, they're part of that settler colonial system. They're upholding that settler colonial system. So this is an attack in any way, shape or form on, on anybody. What it is, right, is an exhortation to other people, to that, to that 25% to say, hey, what are you guys thinking about right now, right? Because I mean, I'm gonna be real honest with you. I didn't write this book for white people. I wrote this book for other Mexicans, right? This is a conversation that I'm trying to have inside my own community. And it's, it's really not about attacking other people. I mean, you know, yeah, it's just, it's just not. I, I think that that's, um, that's, that's a waste of time, you know? So, I mean, what happened in Texas, I think is, is interesting, right? Do you need to throw it out? I, I'm not really sure. I still not really sure exactly what that means. I don't think that we need to throw anything out, um, but I think that we need to understand that it's it's uh, regardless of how it happened, regardless of it was all Mexicans that did it, all Tejanos, right? Um, that it's it still falls within the scope of, you know, this period of settler colonial history. That's what I think. Thank you. So um, let's see how much more time we have. About five minutes. Um, maybe two more questions. Let's see. Uh, so you have, um, let's see. So there's a question here. There is a generation of Mexican Americans whose parents denied them their culture and language in order to assimilate into the dominant American culture. The impact is obviously devastating and traumatic. How can they work? How can the, the children, right, who are affected by this, um, this assimilation, how can they work to regain their indigeneity, their indigenous identity? What do you think? Um, well, I, mean, I think that, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of, lot of good books that have been written. I think that there are uh, political um, organizations locally in communities all over the, all over the country um, that are good to get involved in. You know, I grew up, uh, with a white mother and a black stepfather. Um, I did not grow up with the, the Mexican side of my family. 
And so a lot of what um, I've learned, right, I had to, I had to teach myself. And I think that that's, you know, also a condition of, of where we are in this timeline, you know, so there's no shame in picking up a, a history book about, you know, about Mexico, about the conquest or, or reading about the Chicano movement. These are not things that you know, just because your parents were Mexican. That's, that's not how it works. That's, that's not how genetics works, right? That's what they want us to think. That, that's, that's also a part of the system, right? In thinking that we are uh, authentically, you know, that there are things that, that we know because of who we are. But culture is not passed on through genetics. Culture is passed on through material condition and through the, the, the experiences that we have in the world. And so if you don't have those experiences, right, then there's no way that you can know that. Resistance is intentional, right? Learning your history is intentional. It is resistance. Learning culture, parts of your culture, right? That is intentional. That is resistance. I never cumbia until I was in college, right? Never did. Never had the chance. Never had the opportunity, right? Love cumbias. Never even heard one until I was in college, right? This is, this is the thing that we have to we have to keep in mind, right, is that we cannot allow any sort of like uh, sense of failing on our part, right? We, we're not failing as Chicanos. We're not failing as, as Mexicanos. That, that's, not, that's not the thing, right? Because there, no, there isn't necessarily a way to, to fail at that, right? There's really only a way to succeed at it. Um, because you don't know, that's, that doesn't mean that you're that you're a bad person. <laughs> I mean, it, but we hear this all the time, right? People are like, oh, I, I feel guilty because I don't speak Spanish as good as I should, right? Or I don't do this, right? Don't do that. I mean, these things are, that is, that is the colonizer's voice inside your head telling you, just let it go, right? Just let it go. It's really not that big of a deal. You know, you don't need to resist. Everything, everything is going to be fine, you know? And so when they first come, they do that through the military, right? But after they've been here for a couple of centuries, they don't need to do it that way anymore because we do it to ourselves, right? And so we're the ones that are keeping ourselves in check right now, right? There are 60 million of us, you know, it's time to get those kids out of those cages. I mean, for real, you know, Joe Biden, there, there isn't a Mexican in this country that should vote for Joe Biden until those kids or for any of them, they, we, there, there shouldn't even be an election. Everything should stop until those kids come out of the, that cage. Then we can move forward, right? But we're worried about all of these other things while these children languish. You know, I mean, I have four children. I have seven grandchildren. When I think about it, it makes me sick to my stomach. But, you know, here we are. So I think, yeah, you know, we just got to keep moving forward. And remember that every book you read, every history book you read, every action you participate in, every organization that you join, those are intentional acts. That is resistance. That is how you learn what it means to be Chicano. Chicana, Chicanx. Thank you. So that was the last question. We're out of time for the talk, but I think that's a good segue and a plug for Mexican-American studies. <laughs> I would say that because I, uh, I teach Mexican-American studies. I'm an advocate of Mexican-American studies for everyone. Um, there was one question we, uh, I'll just mention 
um, that they asked, do you think other races other than Mexican-Americans can benefit from Mexican-American Chicano studies? I yes. Say yes. I have many students who are not Mexican-American and they become, you know, super involved. They become activists and it's amazing to see that, right? Yes. Because um, we need allies, right? It's everybody should be working towards social justice, right? For yeah. everybody. Um, and so as we end, can you tell us again, um, someone had asked in the chat, if you can um, state again what the free Chicano studies um, college is, how people can get involved with that, and then also your podcast and how they can keep in touch with what you're doing. So we do, I do a weekly podcast with a, a bunch of other uh, people. It's called The Reality Dysfunction. It's hosted on Podbean. Uh, that's the reality dysfunction. We also have a Facebook page called the reality dysfunction. Uh, the school that we started, um, and I, you know, I'll just let you all know, we launched this on September 16th. And uh, as of this morning, right before I got on this call, I checked and there were 461 people that had signed up for the school from all over the country. Um, it's called Colegio Chicano del Pueblo. And uh, you can also find that on um, the uh, Mexicanos 2070 page. Uh, on um, Facebook or mexicanos2070.com, which is our is our website. And so, and Mexicanos, can you spell Mexicanos for, for everybody? Oh yeah, it's uh, it's uh, Mexicanos, but with the X, M E X I C A N O S 2070.com. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, yeah, because yeah, make sure people type it in correctly if they're looking yeah. for it. So we're you know we're um you know we're accepting all uh, applications. It's a free. It's free. We have three classes right now. Uh, we had a faculty meeting yesterday with about 20 people who have all committed, who are all committing to create courses. Um, eventually, uh, and not, not that far in the future, um, we're working out a um, credit um, deal with Prescott College, where I teach at, uh, where students who um, complete uh, 32 credits uh, through uh, the colegio uh, will be eligible to receive up to 32 credits um, through Pesquet College. And so uh, we're working that deal out right now. I think it's going to be a really great deal. Um, we're super excited about it. And, uh, you know, I think in so many ways, uh, this really represents a giant step forward for uh, Chicano studies. Definitely. And just as a plug for our Mexican-American studies program, we, uh, we also offer uh, Mexican-American studies courses at Palo Alto College that you can enroll in and um, you know, I teach intro to Mexican American studies and Mexican American fine arts appreciation. So anybody listening want to enroll? <laughs> Sounds We're always good. looking for people to enroll. Yeah. So um, thank you so much again for being with us. It was such a, a really, really um, engaging conversation, really great questions that came out of it. So um, best of luck. Hopefully people pick up your book. Oh, and also we're going to be doing a raffle for your, the book that you donated. So right. at least one lucky person will get your book and, <laughs> and be able I to hope, read it. I hope they enjoy it. All right. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. And, and um, we'll keep up with, with what you're doing. I think what you're doing is very important. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. I really appreciate this opportunity to come and talk to you guys. I mean, really from, I mean, really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So all best right. of luck. All Thanks. right. We'll see, see you soon. See you. Thanks. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey homie. hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the raza. This is for the Raza, 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 Raza. This is the reality dysfunction.